Look, that would be fantastic. Thank you. So, Lewis, as I said, I'm extremely grateful. Is it? Would you consider starting us off with some kind of prayer or whatever you think is appropriate? <clears throat> sure. How about if I sing a song? That would be lovely. Thank you. Kola oye wain tatana makum yeyor. Kola oye wain tatana makum yeyor. Wiyok peyata, wikashawan taichiata, aton mayankeyo. Kola hoye wain tata namakun yeyoy. Kola hoye wain tata namakun yeyoy. Wazia takia wikashawan sabi chiacha aton mayankeyoy. Kola hoye wain tatana makunyeyoy. Kola hoye wain tatana makunyeyoy. Wiyokhyam pata wikashawan zi chiyata aitung mayan kenyoy. Kola hoye wain tata namakunyeyoy. Kola hoye wain tata namakunyeyoy. Ito karata wikashawan shkai chiyata aitung wayan kenyoy. Kola hoye wain tata namakunyeyoy. Kola hoye wain tata namakunyeyoy. Wakatakya wakantankan unsamawiyeyoy. Kola hoye wain tata namakunyeyoy. Kola hoye wain tata namakunyeyoy. Mahatakya unsinunketsina ahetumayankino. Omitakya sin. So that every song is a prayer, and that's a, a prayer song to the directions, to the starting with the west, the north, the east, the south, the sky, and the earth. And the center uh, it is unstated. It's the seventh direction, but it, it always remains unstated because it's inside of us. Mm. So. Thank you so much for that, Lewis. Yeah, thank you. 
always happy to invite my friends. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the friends we can get <laughs> these days. Yeah. Lewis, um, by the way, I'm looking forward to a time when you might be able to come to New Zealand. I am so hoping that it will someday open. I am so mm. ready to come. But you're still, yeah. you're still shut down, aren't you? Yes, but I think by early next year, things will start to shift. Oh, good, good. The country's working towards 90% vaccination rates in all the different regions. Well. And that's sort of seen as a critical threshold. And then after that, there'll be some shift, I think. I hope so. Yeah, we, we were able to go to France in September and Scotland in October. Hmm. And I can tell you that it is almost impossible to find a COVID test in the UK for anyone who's not on the National Health Service to get back into the United States. It was <laughs> far out. Yeah, we managed, but hmm. it was so difficult and costly, very yeah. costly. The capitalists are all over this COVID testing thing. Wow. Wow. Lewis, I'm grateful for your time because I know that your time is precious. I've actually got a list of things that I wanted to talk to you about. But the main one is one that I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. And um, it relates to a conversation that we had in Perth, which you may recall I had transcribed and then I've um, done some editing to turn it into a short chapter. But I just wanted to explain again what this project was about. I've run into a situation recently where I think I, I didn't explain in detail to somebody um, and they in the end decided to pull out because of that and um, so I just wanted to be really clear what we had in mind with this particular project. Does that sound okay for me to start there? Oh sure definitely yeah. So and I, I'm, I'm happy to send you a project outline for this. Um, at the moment Wurumu and I are working to complete a manuscript for a second book, which is about voices and visions in relation to Māori healing and psychiatry. We have an, another project, which we've been talking about ever since 2017, or even earlier than that, in which, um, and this is the one that I um, spoke to you about in 2017, but I just wanted to remind you. So the idea of this is that it would be a book that we, hopefully before the middle of this coming year, we'll approach Rutledge with a book proposal. And I'm hoping that we can approach them with four completed chapters, which is how they kind of like to do things so that they can decide if they want to do it. Right. Um, and what we're hoping for for this book is it will be a collection of stories from people who have had various spiritual experiences in their life, and they haven't ended up in mental health services. Um, not to say that it, it doesn't really matter if they have, but the point of it is that what we've written about in the past has been, as you know, um, young people who've had spiritual experiences and ended up 
seeing us because they had distress. Right. And what we what we're kind of wanting, what I, my motivation is, I would like young people and others to be able to read about indigenous experiences of voice hearing, um, visions, other experiences in the context of their lives in a way which kind of normalizes these experiences. Because I think for a lot of people, there's no reference point. You know, a lot of young Māori that I meet don't have a clue. And I just think it would be amazing for them to be able to read a story from someone who is totally comfortable with, with their spiritual experiences, or maybe not totally comfortable, but was able to describe what happened um, so that they can say, oh, gee, here's a whole, here's a bunch of people that I actually quite like what I can read about that person. And they've had spiritual experiences and, and they found a way of living with that. Um, right. So that's, that's been the purpose. Um, it's probable that Rutledge would want some academic component. Most likely that would most likely we would have an introductory chapter from Watermo and I talking about the reason for the project, and then Watermo would talk about some of his own experiences. Then we'll probably have an academic chapter, um, which will probably not be very long, but it will say, here are some academic sources uh, from different indigenous cultures talking about their own experiences and that's some of the context. Um, and then we've, we've got a chapter from a woman who was probably the well most well-known Māori healer or tohunga in the country um, who died last year. And we met with her in 2014 and put together a short chapter from her. And she's actually chosen, at that time, she said she would rather not put her name to it. Um, but anyone that reads that chapter will know exactly who's written it, if they know her. Right. Um, I've, um, I've got a Samoan minister who, although he's a Presbyterian minister, he is quite a broad thinker about spirituality. And he just, he's described to me some really um, vivid spiritual experiences he had growing up in Samoa. Um, I, we've got a sister of Wurumu who has had some um, uh, quite um, vivid spiritual experiences which, had, which she has then expressed in artwork, painting. And so I'm expecting that that chapter will focus quite a bit on her creative process, but also some of her other experiences. We also have a, uh, a young woman who is um, originally from Greenland, Inuit, but is living in Denmark, who we met and I'm planning to approach her and see whether she would contribute some of her stories. Um, so that's just to give you a bit of an idea of the context. I, I don't, have you got a copy of the document that I sent you maybe a few weeks ago now? I'm happy to send you it. No, I right do, now. I have that, yes. Okay, um, so 
by the way, feel free to, if you need to take any calls because of your on-call, just feel free. No, I'm not on-call. I turned it off. I turned the sound off. Okay. Um, so that document, um, either more or less as it is, or with a little bit more, I think would make a wonderful chapter for this kind of book. Great. I, mean, I want you to know, I want you to know that you could pull out at any time um, with these with these kind of things, it's really important, you know, even though we're friends and colleagues, that I'm, I'm still hoping that you will feel free to change your mind if you if you if that's important to do so. It's not important to do so. I'm happy to be part of this. I've, well, yeah, it's, that's lovely. These days anyway. So it's all good. Yeah. Thank you, Lois. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'm sort of mindful that it's been a long process since we first met and talked about it. What I had in mind for today was for us, from, for us to actually go through the chapter sentence by sentence. Um, now, on the, one of the things you may have noticed is that, there was, that I made some extra comments in brackets. Mm. What I was doing there, those were kind of editing suggestions that I was um, making assumptions based on your conversation about um, a little bit of extra content which kind of links paragraphs together, et cetera. Um, so, what, so I'd like to go through and check with you if you feel comfortable with those comments or if you want to make any changes. Obviously, you're, you would be free to edit this in any way you like yourself. But in some ways, um, and I also thought as we're going through, if you, for example, feel that a, a particular story reminds you of another story, we can stop and digress. Okay, sounds good. Um, now, I've got four or five other things to run past you after this, um, but is it okay if we start with these ones? Sure, yes. And if you need to go earlier than what you said before, let me know. I don't want to be... Um, yeah, I, I, this is a, a, a pleasure for me, but if you, if you feel tired or anything later on, just let me know. For sure, will do. <clears throat> Thank you. Now, let me see if I can find, oh, here we go. Um, now I've got my, I've got the document up in front of me now, Lewis, so I can't see you, but, um, but you can attract my attention. Um, verbally unless I've, unless there's some way I can it's okay if I I can I can speak if I need to cool would it would it be okay if I just read out the text and then you then uh, then ask you questions as we go sure that's fine okay so what's the big deal Jesus died and they saw him three days later my uncle Frank died and I saw him three days later and they didn't make a religion after him my grandmother made this telling remark when I was young. She was always trying to figure out Christianity. And then I've added, from time to time, I recall her having these ongoing conversations with beings of different kinds. And this seemed quite normal to me. So I've just added a, the beginning of the end of that sentence. That's good. Does that seem okay yes. to you? It's accurate, yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, 
My grandfather and his friends often did this ceremony where they would sit around in a circle and everyone was smoking what we now call a cigar. They called it a smokestick. Periodically, someone would get a message from a spirit and stand up and deliver it. It was sort of like a Quaker meeting, but Cherokee style. They usually grew their own tobacco for it, but sometimes had to buy some of it if it was a bad year. This was southeastern Kentucky, where people usually had their own tobacco patch. Is that, are those sentences okay? Is there any extra comment you want to make? No, that, that's very accurate, yeah. I used to hang out with them during the ceremonies. I would play in the background and listen, and it seemed normal. I didn't think it was weird. I certainly had entities that I spent a lot of time with. I suppose in contemporary culture, we would call them imaginary friends, but they seemed pretty real to me. Mm -hmm. Anything from that that you want to add, comment on, change? No, I mean, um, you know, I had plenty of invisible animal friends, squirrels and woodchucks and possums and things like that. And they were very, they were very nice. I mean, they were very comforting. Yeah. And when you say you had them as friends, you could see them and hear them? Yes. Yeah. Could, do you think you could also feel them there? No, not that I ever felt them. It's it's been a long time. It's hard to say. Yeah, that's fine. I don't know. I'm and sure. You, actually, did, I'm sure that I probably felt them in dreams, and maybe in that state of awakening, I would feel the fur of a woodchuck next to me, but then it would disappear when I woke up. Yeah. Did you, did you have a feeling about, um, you know, when, when you see or hear something, you might have a sense about whether you're in relationship with them or whether they are behaving as if they're in relationship to you or whether they're just randomly there like the dead nun. No, we were... We were friends. We were in relationship with each other. And how could you tell that? Well, because the same characters kept showing up. You know, I recognized them. And they, they were unique individuals. And would they, would they have a way of interacting with you? Yeah, they were. They were <clears throat> I mean, they were kind and funny and supportive. Um, and, when, and when you said they were funny, I guess that could be in, there could be some nonverbal interaction, which was funny. Was there anything, um, you know, did they speak or anything? Oh, yes, they spoke. They spoke and they, you know, gestured and jumped up and down and did somersaults and you know played for mm. sure yeah yeah and so when they spoke what language did they speak well 
you know, it, it, it sort of, it's the universal language, I suppose. Of, I mean, I, I heard them speaking English because that's what I spoke. Yeah. But it, it happens inside one's head, right? So who knows mm -hmm. what they're really speaking. I mean, I think all spirits speak in a way that we can understand whatever our language is. Mm. So they spoke in a way that I can understand. And so you said that it was inside your head. How would you, um, like, would you hear it as if it was, um, as, as if it felt like it came from inside your head? Well, I would say probably yes, because, um, I mean, I heard them, I heard them very clearly talking to me, but yeah. um, I'm probably looking back at it from the standpoint of my age now. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what I would have said at age four, five, six, seven, if you would have asked me. At this mm. point, I, I interpret it looking backwards. I mean, based on all my life experience, that, that it was a kind of telepathic communication. But I don't know what yeah. I would have said at that time, had you yeah. asked me, had anyone known to ask me, I don't know what I would have said. My grandmother would have said, well, they're just spirits talking to you. That's how they do things. Yeah. And um, do you think you ever will have turned around to respond because you suddenly heard something and, and thought it was really there physically? Yeah, I think so. I, th I, I, can, I can remember that. I mean, yeah. when it's so sharp and clear and you think, oh, there, you know, and, and, you know, we all still have those experiences. I mean, we hear someone calling our name and we turn around and there's no one visually there. Um, I don't think it's very different from that. Yeah. But, but one has to remember that I, I grew up in, a, in an environment in which it was normal to talk to spirits. It wasn't unusual. Yeah. Everyone did yeah. it. And so yeah. it didn't seem weird. It just seemed like, well, you know, whatever. I mean, just- this is, this is what some people do. Well, everyone, this is what everyone does. Yeah. Now, this reminds me of some, something, Lewis. And one of my questions for later on, I was, this there's a couple of things that I was, I recalled at, a, at the Hearing Voices Congress in 2013. I think you were on a panel or something. And I recall you saying something like, um, when, when I first went to medical school, I was surprised to discover that not everyone heard voices. <laughs> right, that is true. That is so true. Yeah, I was, and so I've got a, a question for you. I was wondering whether you would be okay for us to quote you saying that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You may quote me. 
yes. Okay. Um, I'll have to figure out a way that we can reference you in relation to that. For example, it might be personal communication, but do you think you've written it anywhere? I've spoke it many times. I don't know. I don't know if I've written it anywhere. Okay. Yeah. It's possible that we could write it into this sure. uh, chapter. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then I might quote this chapter as an unpublished manuscript. Sure. Um, but I just think it's such a beautiful um, <laughs> quote, and it's stayed with me ever since I heard you say it. Well, you know, medical school was a shock for me because I'd, I'd, I'd not really left indigenous culture so much. You know, my grandparents were always with me, even though, you know, my mother married a, a German farmer when I was older and moved us to Ohio. But my grandparents were always there taking care of me. And I really didn't get it what mainstream culture was about until I got to Stanford. Stanford was, the, was an incredible shock. Yeah. Yeah. And what I, was so shocking about Stanford? Um, the materialism and the lack of belief in spirituality and mm. the, the sort of positivist, empiricist, reductionist um, philosophy that dominated the medical world. Mm. Can you think of any particular examples of any of those things that stand out in your mind? Well, the one, one that I've written about was I was in a pharmacology class and the professor who, who discovered the metabolic syndrome and so he won a prize or two, um, looked at us and he said, boys, because he couldn't admit there were girls in the class, I suppose. He said, boys, life is a relentless progression toward death, disease, and decay. The physician's job is to slow the rate of decline. And, and I was just freaked because my great-grandmother and my grandmother believed that you should die healthy so you can party on the other side and, <laughs> you know, with all your relatives. And they, yeah. they didn't believe that you had to be sick to die or that dying required illness. Mm. And it, it was just too much for me. And I, I ran across campus to the Stanford Indian Center and I burst through the door and there was Henrietta Blue Eyes at the desk. And I said, Henrietta, I need an elder. And she said, what tribe? And I said, Cherokee. And she pulled out her Rolodex, which is now a archaic um, device. Mm. And she found me too. And I was with one by the next weekend. So, um, so I, I, I needed elder support to get through medical school and they provided it for me. Mm. And what do you think, what was that interaction that you first had with that Cherokee elder? Well, he, he just explained to me sort of the, that the modern world, he, he kind of explained settler colonial capitalism to me, though he didn't use those terms. I've learned those mm. terms recently. Yeah. Um, and he explained that 
it's it's two different worlds and we can live in both worlds we can inhabit both worlds we can you know act on our beliefs and and you know hide it hide sufficiently our world to fit into their world as we need to mm. yeah and that was really important for me i mm. mean it's been important my whole life because you know i've been a conventional physician for entire my entire life and also an unconventional person simultaneously and at the same time <laughs> so <laughs> um how how long now since you completed your medical training i finished in 1975 so that's 46 years and so um what year was it when you started at stanford i started in 1972 yeah and so that was when you started that was at starting at medical school right right yeah okay that that's a great story lewis um and that you know getting your assistance at the stanford indian center that was that's also um, a very helpful story. Do you remember who the elder was? Yes, his name was Gila, and he lived in Ukiah, California. And he was amazingly helpful to me. And there was another one that I visited who was further away. Grandfather Roberts was his name. Yeah. And um, he lived outside of Garberville, California. And what did he do that was helpful? Well, I'll tell you a funny story. The first time I went to see him, I drove into his place, which was completely isolated in the woods, and he wasn't there. And so I just waited and waited and waited. And finally, I just pitched a tent. And I figured, well, you know, he'll just show up or he won't. And he showed up 24 hours later and he said, you're still here? He said, I figured you'd leave right away. And I said, well, I came to see you. I figured I'd wait as long as I could to see you. He said, well, all right, then you've seen me. <laughs> so, so then we started, you know, we, we began a conversation. And um, he was a rascal. Um, he had two young women serving underneath him and i mean that in the most literal sense and if we could if we could bottle him and sell it we'd be millionaires he was amazingly virile and energetic and he he had to be in his well he, he seemed ancient at the time because i was young so i suspect he was in his 80s at least maybe 90s who knows, but um, he was a rascal and a character and a healer and amazing guy. And, and it's funny because I keep meeting people who also knew him over the, over the years and we all emerge with the same description of him. That, you know, just his humor, his irascibility, his um, breaking of rules, I mean, 
he was a character. He sounds great. What do you think was the, the characteristics that sustained you when you were dealing with the materialist medical system from him? That I knew there was another world, that I knew that, that it, it existed in parallel to the mainstream world and that we could jump back and forth between worlds and that I didn't have to believe everything they said you know, even if I had to conform to normative behavior, I didn't have to believe them. I could understand mm -hmm. that there's another way of seeing things. And, and you know, now there's that term two-eyed seeing, yes. Albert Marshall, you know, Duwaptamunk yep. um, and Mi'kmaq. And, and really that's what um, both Gidla and Grandfather Roberts taught me was how to, how to perform two-eyed seeing. And that's, that's actually really interesting, isn't it? Because the having a concept's one thing, but how do you actually live it? Right, right, right. And, and you live it by letting them be, by recognizing when it's important not to argue with them and to just say, yeah. well, I see it differently to myself and I'm not going to, talk to you about it because yep. you don't because it because it won't be productive right it'll only go badly right yeah yeah that's that's actually such a different skill set isn't it it is indeed for survival mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's fantastic thank you um Is it okay if we just keep going with the text? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's but again, if you, if you, oh, one thing I was going to ask you, what did you mean that he had two women under him? <laughs> he was sleeping. Because I'm just, what I'm trying to figure out, Lewis, is, is this something to include or not include? Because one of the things that a friend of mine has said that, and I, and I guess I see this part of my role in putting this material together is to take care of anyone that's um, participating. So, for, and that includes um, ancestors, that includes other people. For example, Grandfather Roberts. I don't, I'm sure he would be happy for everyone to know that he was sleeping with two 20 year olds, <laughs> so. Okay, but would you want that to be part of this? I don't, um, fine because it's part of his irascibility. And actually yes. it speaks to indigenous spirituality in North America. I mean, in indigenous sexuality, which yep. there's, a, there's a woman, there's a, a really amazing book uh, called Sovereignty. And there's a woman named Nelson who writes about North American indigenous sexuality. And, yep. and it was really quite fluid and grand, Father Roberts was quite in line with, with this whole um, notion of indigenous sexuality. And, and um, you know, I mean, he had these two 20 year olds that he slept with. I mean, hmm. you know, more power to him, I suppose. I mean, I, I didn't have a judgment because I was like, wow, dude. 
<laughs> if this is <laughs> if this is what you can do when you're 80, that's pretty far out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. Um thank you. Um so I'll just carry on with the next bit. Um, so a lot of people I knew had spirits that hung out with them when we were young, and I don't recall anyone telling them that was crazy. Certainly no one ever told me it was crazy. It seemed pretty normal. My mother probably would have said it was crazy, but she wasn't there. She was often at college, and a lot of things were hidden from her because she was trying to be a modern woman. I really like this way you describe your mum. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I have to say, I so admire my mother because she brought us out of poverty mm. through her, her efforts to get an education. And she was able to go to college for free because there was a college where we lived um, that provided free studies for Appalachia, poor Appalachian youth. Mm. And, you know, they had to work their way through college. And my mother quilted her way through college. And, and her quilts were sold at the college store. And she continued to quilt throughout her life. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I really admire my mother because mm. she hid me from the social workers. She was a single mother and she hid me from the social workers who would take away, you know, native children in those days from single mothers. And yep. she went and she made it through college. And she really, for her education was the new Buffalo. It was, you know, she gave me that drive to become educated mm. as a kind of counter hegemony against the dominant culture. And, and Do you I, think that's the way she saw it? I'm sorry, what? The, as a counter hegemony. Yes. Yes. So, so she saw it that way. I don't know. She wouldn't have. She didn't talk about it much. I don't even hmm. know if she knew that word. But, yep. but um, that's what it was for her. It was like standing up against the mainstream and getting educated. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. She was very cool. I mean, mm. you know, we fought about things, but, you know, she was very cool. Mm. Yeah, that's great. It's, a very, it's very helpful to have that clarification. I'll just read this paragraph. She was at least half Cherokee, but this was the 50s, and she didn't really want to be Cherokee because at that time in the US, Indians were considered to be dirty scum. We were not liked. It wasn't a thing many people wanted to be. So she spent a lot of time not being Cherokee. We discovered that her mother, my grandmother, was listed on the census as Mexican. And it turned out that my mother would cross out the Indian and put Mexican. When I asked her about it more recently, she said, well, we are certainly not Mexican. <laughs> so she's softening towards Indians now. 
Right. At some point, she decided it was better to be Indian than Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you think that was about? Mm, the changes in perception of U.S. society toward Indians and Mexicans. Indians yeah. were going up. Mexicans were going down. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, my mother was part of the refrigerator generation. All the appliances in my childhood were white. White stove, white refrigerator, white toaster. Do you want to comment on that metaphor, Lewis, in relation to your mum and how she... Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I understand her. I mean, she really was trying to bring us out of poverty. And she mm. was doing it in the best way she knew how. And, yep. and so fitting into the mainstream culture, you know, de-indigenizing was the way to do it in her mind. And I, you know, once upon a time, I was critical of her for that, but I can't mm. be critical of her anymore because I wasn't there. I wasn't in her position, you know, a single mother in the fifties. And, and I, trying to survive. Yeah, trying to survive. And, mm. and um, I think she did the best she could. I think she optimized her opportunities as, as best as anyone could in her position. Yeah. By the way, so you grew up with your father's parents and they're Cherokee. What, what um, ethnicity was your mum's or your mum's parents? No, my mother was Cherokee and our ancestor uh, was on the Cherokee, the Baker Rolls of the Cherokee from 1928. And my father, now, now this, is a lot, this is a convoluted story. There were yeah. four candidates for my father, <laughs> my mother. Yeah. I, I believe that my mother got pregnant and she quickly slept with three more men to try and yeah. get someone to marry her. Yeah. To be respectable because this was 19 this would have been 1953 yeah and um so i so the man on my birth certificate uh for whom i was named his name was lewis eugene mckinley senior and my birth name was lewis eugene mckinley jr um he was cherokee and for many years i believed that I was 100% Cherokee until I tracked him down in Florida when I was in my 30s and discovered, you know, through DNA testing that he wasn't my father. Mm. And I'd, I'd already DNA tested two other candidates. And he, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to indigenous North America in the 1950s. So... Mm. <clears throat> So there was one more candidate who was his best friend. They were, they were all in the Air Force together. And my mother met these people at a USO dance, United Services Organization, which supported the military. Um, and in those days, in the 50s, they paid local women to dance with soldiers. Hmm. So, um, so he told me that it was his best friend who was probably my father, but that he'd sworn to my potential father that he wouldn't ever 
give up the secret. And so I, I, it was a dead end. I, I DNA tested three of the four candidates. I was left with the fourth, who was a Lakota guy from Rapid City, South Dakota, Pine Ridge Reservation. So, um, so since that time, I've believed that he was my father and I'm part Lakota. Um, though, you know, I, I never found him. I looked hard and, and long and I never tracked him down. Though I did discover Lakota spirituality, which, was an, which became an amazing part of my life, you know, since I was 40. Um, so, you know, it's complicated these days, in those days in Indian country, figuring out who was your dad and where you come mm -hmm. from. I suspect the same thing happened in Australia and New Zealand to some degree. Mm. So, um, Lewis, I guess I'm just thinking about, are you comfortable with all of that material being potentially in this chapter? Yes, I'm fine. You know, cool. it's because, my you know, hearing, hearing someone, I guess, senior, talking about this level of detail could be incredibly comforting to some young people who feel um, unclear about, you know, who their dad was or whatever. Right. I, right. I just imagine that a story like this could really talk to some young person. Yes, and I'm fine with that. I would mm -hmm. want them to understand that they're, whomever their father was, they're valid, perfectly good human beings. It doesn't matter. You know, and, yep. and what I like to say is, in, you know, in North America, we have this Blood Quantum Act that was enacted in 1904 that yep. establishes like what percent we are and, and whether we're an Indian or not. And, yep. and we're not dogs or horses. And I really think we have to go back to being citizens of a nation and not, you know, percentages of people. Yeah. And, you know, it, I think it's just so important that we overthrow mm. the Blood Quantum Act of 1904, because it's so traumatic to so many people. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind if I digress slightly yeah. just for a moment? Um, so, and this is, it's in, I've been sort of immersed in the writing of this other material, which, which I think would be close to your heart as well, Lewis. It's about and at the moment, I'm, I'm writing, um, Wadamu's written a whole chapter on what Māori writers have had to say about voices and visions, looking at it from an, you know, an Indigenous point of view, which has often been Māori prophets. But one of the things I'm really interested in is colonisation and how, how certain ideas were suppressed, like that person I see might be my ancestor. And I was reading yesterday some material from um, Vine Deloria about, um, about Indian religions being 
suppressed, of course, by all the churches. And But do you think there are any particular um, legal processes that contributed to that? Or have you got any other comments about how, I guess, in America, Indian spirituality was suppressed? Yes, <clears throat> it was made illegal by an act of Congress in the 19th century. And it wasn't until 1978 that it was re retained its legality. It was the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978. And so um, when I first started going to ceremony, they were illegal. And yeah. I remember I was at a ceremony with a Catholic priest who had brought his collar and was prepared to put it on and declare the ceremony a proper Roman Catholic ritual if the police showed up. And I was so impressed <laughs> with him. Absolutely. I laugh, but it's not a funny matter. No, he was a beautiful man. His name was Father Stone. And, yep. and he was beloved on the reservation. Because, yep. and he told me, he said, you know, he said, truth be told, I like your spirituality better than mine he said <laughs> <laughs> but he did so you know so i'm just thinking about this american indian religious freedom act so do you, obviously the outlawing of indian religion would mean that it wouldn't be okay to talk about seeing spirits no no because only only i think only priests can see spirits in christianity maybe i'm not sure exactly yeah. but yeah. but ordinary people are not allowed to see spirits yeah okay so the church has obviously had a, a big part in suppressing indian spirituality Yes, supported by the government, I might add. Yeah. And which do you think were the, the biggest churches? Obviously, Catholic Church. Right. And in presumably Anglicans. Anglican in Canada, Presbyterians in Alaska. Um, yeah. Perhaps Baptists in the Southeast. Huh. And. Yeah. Um, Methodists in the in the middle of the country. Yeah. Missouri, Oklahoma. Places like that. Can you can you think of any other authors who have written about this? Oh, absolutely. There's um, Burkhart, uh, who's a professor of philosophy at the University of Oklahoma, who wrote a book, Indigenous Philosophy. And um, of course, Vine Deloria wrote about this. Yeah. And uh, there's Anne, Delor Anne Waters, who's an indigenous philosopher. Um, let's see. Um, who else? Oh, Megan Bang, who's an indigenous philosopher of science. And um, There's that anthology that I talked about, Sovereignty, edited yeah. by a woman named Barker. 
um, that's full of information. So, so lots of lots of books emerging and writings. Thank you. Can I just check Burkhart, B-E-R-K-H-A-R-T? B-U-R-K-H-A-R-T. B-U, thank you. Yeah, Brian Burkhart. Brian. And Anne Waters, W-A-T-T-E-R-S? One T, W-A-T-E-R-S. Okay, and Anne with an E? Yes. Her book is American, in American Indian Thought. And so she'd be talking about some of that history about spirituality. Yes. And then you said Megan Bang, B-A-N-G? Yes, B-A-N-G. And she writes about, um, she has a concept called epistemological genocide, and which is the destruction of ways of knowing of indigenous people. And that is, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, that would be Megan Bang. And, and she's an amazingly prolific writer and philosopher. Any, anything you'd recommend most that I read of hers? Um, I think anywhere you go will take you to wherever you need to be. Okay, cool. Thank you. Sorry for that little digression, but that's incredibly helpful for me right now. Um, oh, this, um, you've just given a wonderful description of these different churches and their connections with different parts of the country. Have you written about that anywhere? No, it's not been something, it hasn't really come up in what I've been writing. Yeah, and you probably don't want to put energy to it either. But um, that will be somewhere, I guess, find a lawyer or one of those other ones will comment on those, the churches. Yes, yes. Cool. Thanks, Lewis. Um, so, then in the next paragraph, is it all right if, if we jump back onto this text, Lewis? Oh, for sure. Yeah. In the next paragraph, it says, however, I spent most of my time growing up in the company of my father's parents. Um, I'm a bit puzzled by that now. I think that that's probably wrong. I mean, okay. my, my grandmother and her husband, that yeah. I spent most of my time. In the company of my grandmother and grandfather. Yeah. Now, my grandfather was not biologically related to me. Yeah. So they married after I was born. Yeah. And he was Cherokee, very strongly Cherokee. So, as far as my grandmother was concerned, my imaginary friends were real. Her interpretation was that they were spirits for sure. She believed they just wanted to hang out and play with me. I mean, it wasn't like they had any big message. They were just having some fun and keeping me company. Right, right, exactly. Okay, so that's good to clarify that. And I will I'll rework that little bit and include some of your other um, comments from earlier. Um, and then the next paragraph, I've just, I've just made a linking statement. It's interesting to think back on these experiences. 
Does that sound all right to you? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes I could see them. Other times I could hear them talk to me. And yet other times I could feel them in space without always seeing them there. Right. That sort of awareness of presence. Yeah. And you know that, I mean, that's been true my whole life. So it hasn't really changed. Yeah. yeah. On some occasions, I one of the things I really love about what, what you're saying in this, uh, in this text is some of your detail about the nuances of the actual experience. And uh, so on some occasions, in order to see them, I would have to look sideways in that direction. I also learned if I got too analytical, then it was harder to see them. If I was forcing it, I might see a fence post or something else physical where they were standing, almost like some kind of superposition of realities. Indeed, that's still the case. I mean, it's yeah. so true. Yeah. Um, and are you happy with that phrase, superposition of realities? Yes, indeed. It, yeah. I think it's very accurate. Yeah. They could be tricky like that. However, I learned that if I kept my vision soft and didn't focus, didn't force anything, I could see them standing there. That's still true for me today. I wonder if it's because we have learned to use a gaze that is so Europeanized that we have to consciously not use that gaze if we want to see spirits. I just know that usually when I look at something, now I put in the word spiritual there, if I look at something straight on, often it decomposes into a fence post or a scrub tree or something like that. Right, right, that's accurate. Are you comfortable with the word spiritual in there or do you prefer a different word? No, that's a good word. That's, that's yeah. Funny. yeah. Some, it's funny, I noticed some people have an issue, well, a, a, an Australian friend has a bit of an issue about whether something's cultural or spiritual, but he's, he's actually a white Australian. And I think probably he just, it's an issue around spiritual being like religious, maybe. Maybe, yeah. So that's why I was checking. Well, they are spiritual, <laughs> so therefore they're spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, when I heard voices, they didn't command me to do anything. Do you want to comment further on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the voices that I hear are very friendly. I mean, I hear my grandmother constantly, and the only command that she gives me is do rat. You know, she's like my moral, she's like my Jiminy Cricket. You know, she's always looking over me, telling yeah. me what, you know, what to do. Like, um, <clears throat> but I, I've never had, I've never heard a voice that's told me to do anything bad or yeah. terrible. I mean, they're mm. very friendly. My, my invisible friends are, are quite warm and you know, pleasant, and I like them, and they like me, yeah. and we get along. Mm. So I, I don't think it's trauma that opens people to negative spirits or to bad, you know, to those, those entities that would 
you know, pose harm. And it may be that those entities are beings from their lives. They're not um, true spirits, but they're earthbound entities who, you know, the, the Dine believe that whatever evil you do on earth, it can't go with you to the spirit world. It, they call it Chenli, and, and they board up Hogans where people died so that their Chenli can't escape. And so I think that um, people who have been traumatized become haunted by Chinli. And, and these, they become haunted by the voices of their traumatizers, of their perpetrators. And, and um, you know, they're very negative. And, and we have to work to oppose those voices. But, you know, thankfully I was never traumatized. I mean, I was, I mean, as an older child, I was beaten by my stepfather, but I was already old enough to resist, you know, and mm. I did. I mean, I, I would stand up to him and tell him to beat me harder, I would say. I would say, try harder, you haven't succeeded yet. You haven't beaten me down yet. You know, whip me harder, you know, which would enrage him. And, and, but that's really different. Somehow I wasn't as vulnerable as some people are. And I suspect it was because of my grandparents. Mm. So I didn't accumulate these, these uh, terrible voices that people suffer with you know, which I work so hard, you know, to, to help them to, to stand up to these voices and overcome them, you know, but that wasn't what happened to me. Mm. Thank you, Lewis. That's wonderful. Now, could you just, uh, I just want to get the spellings of some of the words you used before. You talked about Chinle. How do you spell Chinle? C-H-I-N-L-E. Okay. And was it, what's the cultural origin of that word? It, it comes from the Dene in northern New Mexico and northern Arizona. And it is just part of the. How, how do you spell Dene? D E N E H is a common spelling. D E N E H. Yeah, because they're, I mean, it's not an oral language, so they. Although they have, they have a written language now, which is incredibly difficult. Sorry, you were saying it, you were saying it's were you saying it's not a written language? It wasn't, but it is yeah. now. And it's in symbols that are not English. Yeah. Okay. Was there another word that you used in that paragraph when you're talking about Chinlay? And if you can't remember, don't worry, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah, that's all right. Um, thank you. Oh, I was going to ask you, um, your grandmother, you said that you hear her voice regularly. Constantly. Sometimes and, it's annoying. <laughs> and so 
Um, when you say when you say constantly, are you saying like every five minutes you probably would hear something? Oh, maybe every half hour. <laughs> yep. Okay. And does it feel like it's the same kind of conversation you might have had when she was alive? Indeed. Absolutely. And so the personality of this voice is exactly like her. Yes. Yes. And, and does, it, does it sound like her voice? Yes, yes. And where does it seem to come from? Uh, somewhere in the center of my occipital cortex. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's very precise, very good. <laughs> and I imagine it makes you smile sometimes. It does, it does. And sometimes I just want to say, go away, leave me alone. <laughs> I'm busy. I'm busy. <laughs> yeah. But and has it ever happened that she interfered in something when you didn't necessarily want her to be casting moral judgment on what you were doing? No. Whenever she's casted moral judgment on what I'm doing, she's been right. But I mean, you know, that you might have felt initially irritated by. Yeah. Yeah. No, that. that's, that's definitely happened. Can you think of an example? Oh, uh, let's see. <clears throat> so I, I have an ex who got addicted to opiates. And sometimes I would get just extremely angry at her for her addiction hmm. and, and feel like I wanted to hurt her. And my grandmother would say, would, would step in and, and admonish me. And sometimes I would get angry at her. Hmm. But she was. So what would she say? She would say, that's, that's not the way we are. That's not how we do things. That's yep. not how we think about people. Stop hmm. it. <laughs> so she would say, stop it? Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> um, so when did you first hear her voice? Well, after she died, I mean, like probably the day after she died, she spoke to me and, yep. you know, it was really moving and I felt her love and she said she would always be with me and, and, and would help me. Yeah. And... How old were you at that time? Let's see. I was probably, let's see. I was probably in my 50s. Okay. 40s. So she lived to be 92. And, and um, yeah, somewhere in my 40s or 50s. And were you, uh, were you there when she died? No, no, I wasn't, sadly. Um, and what contact did you have with her in that, you know, few years leading up to her death? Well, I visited her a few times a year, maybe once or twice. Um, Was she still living in Kentucky? No, my mother had moved everyone to Ohio by then. 
And yeah. there's an amazing book about this. Here, I'll, I'll pull it down and I'll show it to you. It's called Hillbilly Elegy. Let's see if I can get it to show up on the screen. I don't know, it's hard to get it to appear. But anyway, it's by J.D. Vance. And it's about where we moved to. It's about all the Kentucky people moving to Hamilton in Middletown, Ohio, and creating what's called Hamiltucky. And that's where we arrived, all of us, lock, stock, and barrel, to because there was a steel mill there that people that hired people. And yeah. so my relatives got jobs in the steel mill or in the mattress factory. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, what was the name of the book? Hillbilly? Hillbilly Elegy. What's the second word? Elegy, E-L-E-G-Y. Gotcha, thanks. So she was living in Ohio. You were visiting her three or four times a year. Yes. Um, and But obviously you still would have felt very close to her. I did, yes, yes. Did you ever have an experience of her being around you before she died? Yes. I mean, I, I felt like she, you know, she traveled, that she astral projected is maybe the word. I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I felt like she traveled and she kept an eye on me. So it's like her spirit might travel to visit you. Yes, yes. And maybe that would happen. Would that happen when she was asleep or? I don't know, because I don't know when she was asleep. But yeah, I know it happened. Yeah. So how did you experience her when she did that? Well, I always experienced her as incredibly loving and caring and nurturing. Yep. And so that was always my experience of her. Even if I was annoyed at the things she told me, which were usually correct. Hmm. <laughs> um, so that you said described that first experience after she died were you at, at the funeral for her or at the yes yes and and it was so it was so sad because I felt like I was more connected with her before the funeral than at the funeral like, yeah. it was, like she wasn't really she was around, but not focused in the corpse that we were all, you know, looking at. Yes. What kind of a ceremony was it? Well, my mother had married into the Presbyterian church. So it was Presbyterian. Yeah. Do you think that affected how you felt about the ceremony? I wasn't very moved by the ceremony. I mean, I was deeply affected by her death and I was happy to still be in contact with her, but the ceremony didn't do a lot for me. It was too formulaic and Christian and, you know, it just didn't speak to me. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you described, was it the next day or the, uh, within a couple of days? 
the next day yes yeah where were you at that where because you would have gone back to ohio for the funeral mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where were you the next day i would have been traveling um i think you know i don't remember i remember yeah. being on an airplane i don't remember where i was coming from it's funny yeah Okay, but so you were on an airplane, and was that when you had this experience of hearing her voice and feeling her love? Yes, yes. Yeah, and is, do you think that's part of your experience of her most days, that you hear her voice? Can you also feel that love generally yes. when you hear the voice? Completely, absolutely, yes. And when you feel that, does can you locate it in space or is it all around you or is it just a feeling in your head or? I, I think it's all around me. It's just this feeling of being enveloped in her love. Yeah. And sorry to ask these pernickety questions, but I'm appreciating your uh, patience with me, Lewis. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, um, mate. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to flip back to the text. There have only been a few instances where I've seen a spirit very clearly. One time years ago, I was at an elder's apartment that I knew and I saw this person walk through his kitchen. It was one of those galley kitchens. And now I've put, I've put the word, the apparition, to try and make it clear that this wasn't a physical human being. Are you comfortable no, with that word? Like a, it looked like a physical human being at the time. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think better to say that than the apparition? I think so, yeah. Okay. And, and I, I suspect I've had more of those experiences than I thought about when I spoke to you initially, because I've seen beings that couldn't possibly be there who looked very physical and normal and ordinary. Yeah, okay. So I've changed this and I've said, it was one of those galley kitchens and what looked like a physical human being walked straight through from one end to the other. Mm. Um, maybe it'd be better what looked like, um, how would you describe the person? Well, ordinary, just like an ordinary person. Man, woman? Man, well, I mean, if I remember this episode, it would have been a man. Uh, and do you mind me asking you a little bit more detail and you're welcome to tell me that that's enough questions no no please ask um, so this man uh, do you think he was medium height or tall or short or ordinary you know medium medium yeah. and um Old looking, balding, bearded. Middle aged. Middle aged. 
Do you remember anything about what he was wearing? Um, a suit. What kind of suit? Like gray, black? Black with a white shirt and a tie. In a tie, did you say? Yes. Like a black tie or something? I think it was a black tie, yeah. Yeah. And clean shaven? Yes. Anything about his hair? Short. Dark or? Dark. Graying? Yeah. Sorry, I missed your response. Dark, dark hair. Um, okay, so sure was I that it was a real person visiting, I made them a cup of tea and walked the way they had come to deliver it to them. However, there wasn't anyone there. Then I went back into the living room and the elders there told me, oh, you, you just saw the golden gal gal. Now, I don't know what the spelling of that was supposed to be. <laughs> you know, I don't know either. I, I completely have forgotten the spell it, the proper spelling. That's all right. If I so I've written it as G A U G A U. That sounds good. What do you think they meant by that? Was that the name of the person? I suppose you know I don't really know. Hey, yeah. let me pause for just a minute while I run to the washroom. Certainly, thank you, Lewis. Hmm. I mean, I, I would add that all of my encounters with these kinds of spirits have been friendly. I've not had any negative, scary encounters with anyone, which I think, mm. you know, I think our patients, because of their trauma, are more open to, to negative energy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, actually. I'm just wondering about this, this, um, the golden gal gal. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. I, I'm wondering whether that adds a detail which, which will be hard for readers to make sense of. Um, but presumably they were referring to the person's name. I would think so, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Lewis. Now, the next little bit, uh, the first sentence is, there was one other time at Sundance, and I was wondering whether, for readers who don't know what Sundance is, Lewis, could you please explain? Well, Sundance is an amazing ceremony, um, and it, it consists of four days of thirsting, and fasting and dancing. And we do it to give thanks for our life being saved or to ask for someone's life to be saved or in gratitude 
for someone having been saved. And so, um, so there's a tree in the center of the arbor that we dance around. And there's um, flesh offerings that are made. And um, it's just one of the most powerful ceremonies I've ever experienced. It lasts, as I said, four days. And there's four days of purification that happened before the dance itself. So it's about an eight day affair. And it mm -hmm. happens in the summer, usually around the summer solstice or in various directions around that date. And um, there's a lot of them, at least probably over 500 sun dances taking place in this last summer in North America. And so can they happen any, anywhere in North America where the, peop where the people want it to happen? Right, right. They're most common east of the Rockies in, on the plains, east of the Rockies, because that's where they originated. But by now they've spread all over North America. And which nations are they connected to? Um, originally connected to Lakota, um, Nakota, Dakota, Blood, um, Kiowa, the tribes east of the Rockies. But yeah. and it and the ceremony itself, there's a Lakota version and a Cree version. The Cree version and the Shoshone version are very similar. So the Lakota version is more common and is spread all over North America. The Cree version is a bit less common, but is also spreading. Cree mm. would be um, east of the Rockies in Saskatchewan and Alberta in Canada. Thank you. And what what's the connection with the sun? So so the dance is is so the sun is considered the most powerful sky spirit and the sky spirit that gives us life. Yeah. And so the dance is is to honor the sky spirit who comes in through the east and um, <clears throat> departs in the west. And um, the sun gives its energy to the trees who give their energy to the rocks in the fire, who give their energy to the people who absorb the heat mm. in the, in the um, Inipi ceremony, which is part of the Sundance. And in the Sundance, um, people give thanks to the sun for saving their lives or sparing the lives of others or entreating the sun to spare the life of someone who's suffering. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. Thank you. That's lovely. Um, you, you used a word which was part of the Sundance. Was it Aniti? 
Inipi is the purification ceremony that happens around the Sundance. Um, and it's, it's when we, so we bring, we heat stones and we bring them into a covered dome-like structure and we yeah. pour water on them and which makes it really hot and and the vapor revitalizes us the steam revitalizes us yeah. and these prayers and songs that happen in conjunction with that and anipi is that spelled n-i-p-i-p i-n-i-p-i so i-n-i-p-i yes yes any means to breathe and p is the third person plural ending so inipi means they breathe and then you put on inipi kaga which means they breathe ceremony and and we've been told that the best translation into english is revitalization ceremony And kaka was is, is that k a k a k a g a the g's are oh. yeah German is the closest language to Lakota. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so during the ceremony, a number of us were going around in a circle and there was one point in the circle where I could see and hear a whole bunch of men talking. Now, when you gave this account, Lewis, I wasn't sure whether you meant that these men were actually not physically present. Well, I could see them, but I knew they weren't physically present. Okay. You know, and I, I think that's the difference between people who suffer and, and those of us who don't is that the frontal lobe is, isn't working so well. So, like if your frontal lobe isn't working so well, you don't know that these are spirit beings that you can see. You think maybe they're physical beings because you're, you know, you're, you're not able to discern as well. This, this, this is a really interesting point, isn't it? Because then it becomes about discernment. Right. And somehow if your discernment's a bit compromised, it could um, be very disturbing. Exactly. Um, afterwards, a bunch of us compared notes. We had all seen them, and we had all been trying to figure out who they were and tell them to be quiet because they are not supposed to be talking while we were doing the Sundance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah try to tell spirits what to do doesn't work trying to tell spirits what to do doesn't work so i've just repeated that for my own audio tape um did you think they were um indian yes definitely what made what made you think that because they were dressed up like Indians, you know, from the past. 
Okay, and so they, so you could see them and they were dressed up like Indians and were they speaking in a particular language? Well, you know, I mean, I could understand some of what they were saying. So they were probably speaking in that universal telepathic language. Yeah. Um, and, but what made you think that you wanted them to be quiet? Well, it, it was just a part of the ceremony, you know, a, a profound part of the ceremony and they seemed to be like not honoring it. But in, yeah. in retrospect, I think they were giving us a teaching, which is don't take yourself so seriously, you guys. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Lighten up. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And could you feel them? I could see and hear them, but I don't know that I could feel them. I'm just wondering whether their presence had a particular feeling that went with it. They were they were not so close to feel. They were a bit yeah. removed. Okay. But it didn't feel like a threat and it didn't, it felt like they were part of it somehow? Yeah, they were like kind of, you know, just there doing their thing. And it's, and I think in retrospect, reminding us that it's not that serious. Hmm. Cool, thank you. Uh, next paragraph. These, there are, there are two times that I've seen things very clearly. Um, I've just added very clearly. Generally, I sense things and I hear things, but I don't usually see things. It seems to me that sometimes they can materialize much more firmly, but I don't know why. Um, and that adding that bit very clearly is fine. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In my book, Coyote Medicine, I wrote about another time when I was sitting on the Berkeley Pier. Is that, do you say it, Berkeley? Mm-hmm. Berkeley, California. Yeah. yeah. I was in my mid-30s at the time. The pier, uh, and I put juts quite far out into the sea. And while I was sitting there, some guy came up and sat down next to me. Soon we began to have this profound conversation, which wasn't typical of people on the Berkeley Pier. I was quite amazed in one way, but in another way, it felt quite ordinary too. And after some time, I looked away. And then when I turned my gaze back to him, I was surprised to see that there was no one there. There was no way he could have disappeared through any normal means. I would have heard him jump in the water and there was no other way he could have removed himself without my noticing. So that was one of those kind of spiritual experiences that happen sometimes. Indeed. Are you comfortable with the word spiritual there? Yes. Um, I don't know why they... I don't, and I think I was thinking about putting, I don't know why spirits do that. <laughs> um, I don't know why spirits do that. And I don't know how they decide what they're going to do. Sometimes they just show up. I've always assumed that everyone sees people that have just died walking across the yard. And then I've added, certainly that has been a common experience for me. Does that sound all right? Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
recently I saw uh, somebody's father walking across the yard the day after he died. Yes. Um, I'm just wondering what we do with the identity of the person. Uh, or should we just say someone's father walking across? A friend's father. Good. Yeah. That's good. Walking across the yard. And was that the day after he died? Yes. The day after he died. And it was kind of cool because he was a lot younger than he was when he died and he looked really perky. He was wearing a fancy hat and, and then I've asked, was there any kind of emotion on his face? He, he just looked happy. Jaunty, you know, perky. Yeah. And the next thing is kind of like a contrasting example. Years ago, I worked at a hospital in Tulsa, New Mexico. Taos, Taos, New Mexico, T-A-O-S. T-A-O-S. Yeah. Thank you. Did you say Taos? Mm -hmm. Taos, New Mexico. And the quarters where we slept for the night shift was an old convent. Do you, were you a resident at that time? No, I was in emergency position. Yeah. That was back in the days when you could sleep at night as an emergency physician before mismanaged care hit and everyone decided that the best time to go to the emergency room for primary care was at midnight. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's probably an American phenomenon. I think I think emergency departments can be busy in lots of places, can't they? But yeah. Um, I worked as an emergency physician at a hospital in Taos, New Mexico, and the quarters where we slept for the night shift was an old convent. The building was full of nuns walking around. I do remember. Uh, nuns are scary. <laughs> but there were... No nuns living there yeah. by this time. Yeah, long gone. Yeah. One night I got really scared because I woke up and there was this nun standing at the foot of my bed. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget uh, that. Yeah. Um, and then I've put, after I had a moment to get my bearings, I said, all right, what are you doing? Do you want to scare me? Why are you here? Does that little intro work okay? Yes, yes, it does. <clears throat> Thanks. After a few moments, she turned around and walked to the door and disappeared. Afterwards, I wondered about it, included that maybe this was her room and she was angry that I was in her bed. And maybe we can add that comment you said, some nuns, can be very scary. Yeah. You okay with that? I'm okay with that. <laughs> when, 
when I think about it, the guy on the pier was a deep experience because he was asking me powerful questions about my life. In contrast, when I saw the nun at the foot of my bed, that didn't feel like a deep spiritual experience at all. It was just some dead nun. <laughs> I just like your humor in this, Lewis. It's very good. <laughs> I think it must be really difficult for people to have these experiences if they don't have a framework to put them into. When I was young, I had my elders who could explain these things to me. And so I realized what was happening and could tell myself, oh, well, spirits are always doing funny things and you can't predict their behavior. Sometimes they want to help you and sometimes they're just annoying. <coughs> yes. Well, I remember my grandmother telling me, go play with your friends. And by that, she meant my invisible friends. <coughs> I'm yeah. pretty sure she could perceive some of them too. Anyway, because of where we lived in the country, she knew I couldn't get into too much trouble. Um, does that all sound okay? It does, indeed. Thank you. Now, Lewis, um, oh yes, I'm, I'm just aware of the time, but what I want to do is to get through the next couple of paragraphs, and then I've got a question to ask you about the second second one. Okay. Uh, and so this is a sentence that I've added. For me, I can sense the presence of a spirit more often than I will see it. Is that true or not true? Yeah, I can feel their presence more often than I physically see them. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I can sense that there is something there because it just feels like the space is now full. Usually if I have the time to sit and, and I put and listen, for a while, I can get a voice and sometimes I can get a vision. Are you okay to add in and listen? Yes. Yeah. Sometimes my vision may be male or female and sometimes it could be genderless. I've just added sometimes my vision might be male or female. Is that all right? That's fine. Yes. Some spirits don't have gender. Mm -hmm. And then I've added, and in terms of where the voice comes from, my experience is that in general, it comes from the being that it comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, would it make more sense to say it comes from the being that is present there with it? Yes, that would be fine. Yes. Being that is present there. And so in that way, I would sometimes be able to locate it in space. Does that sound all right? Yes, it does. But the question of how I perceive the voice or how to describe it to others is a hard one. For me, they just are. They are just there. They just speak. Does that sound okay? It does. Now, the next paragraph is, I like it so much that I'm quite keen that if, to see whether you'd be okay with Widomo and I quoting you in the book that we're writing at the moment. Okay. Um, and it's just because it's such a vivid description of, of the life. Uh, well, anyway, I'll read it so you can see. I can tell when I'm talking to myself because I'm not as smart as the voices. 
I'm, I'm confident I can tell the difference between me thinking and me hearing a being speaking. I notice that when it is me, I'm flatter, less humorous, less insightful. I experience my own thoughts as more boring. It's always the same old, same old things that I say to myself. It's like nothing useful mostly. As a result, I try to stop thinking as quickly as possible because I, it, it can feel a pretty worthless activity. But the beings that speak, they frequently stop me in my tracks. There is a colorful flavor to them that makes me think, wow, there is a spiciness to what they have to say and how they say it that makes a distinct impact on me. This, um, did you want to comment on any of that? And they have a much better sense of humor than I have to. Yeah. Just write that. They also have a much better sense of humor than I have. In some ways, what you're saying is they're, they're more funny. Yes, they are. They're definitely more funny. They are much more funny. Yes, absolutely. Then, of course, there are ones that are just running around ignoring you like the dead nun. She was just the dead nun standing at the foot of the bed. She didn't have anything to say. Perhaps she was pissed off with me sleeping in her bed. Whatever it was, there was no message. Right. Um, Lewis, this, this bit about, but the beings that speak, they frequently stop me in my tracks. There is a colorful flavor to them that makes me think, wow. There is a spiciness to what they have to say and how they say it that makes a distinct impact on me. And, and including, they also have a much better sense of humor than I have. They're much more funny. Would you be okay if it was if we quoted you saying that? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, and I guess what I'll, because it doesn't come from a published document, Rutledge might have an issue with that. But I was then thinking possibly we could... Um, to make describe this as an unpublished document or something Personal with your name and and we, use it as yeah we could call it an interview yeah okay I'll um thank you so much for that I'll I'll what I'll do is I'll show you what I've written when it comes to that yeah, um, now you're comfortable with describing her as pissed off describing the nun perhaps she was pissed off with me sleeping in her bed yes yes <laughs> guessing you know why does the dead nun stand at the foot of your bed hmm. yes. that could be the beginning of a joke <laughs> <laughs> i haven't found the punchline yet <laughs> yeah Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, some, sometimes I think we catch them doing things and it's not for us or about us. They're just doing things out and about in the world. I, uh, maybe that was her. Maybe she was yeah. just coming to bed and she was shocked to see that some dodo was in her bed. <laughs> yeah. Um, another example was when I saw my ex's father walking across the lawn on the day of his funeral. We can change it to friend's father. Yeah. I'm certain he wasn't doing it for me. I don't know why I could see him, but there he was. Right. Sometimes I wonder if they forget to turn on their cloaking device. 
that's good. Indeed. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, now, we've got to here, and there's a couple of other things I want to ask you before we finish today, if that's all right. I'm going to have to go pretty soon because I've got an yes. interview in 11 minutes. <laughs> so. Oh, okay. I will let you go. Just um, We can finish up later, though, like tomorrow or Friday. Oh, cool. 